You never know who you're going to see. I beat one guy one-on-one -on -one my whole career. It's timing. It's right for time. the clenching goal to bring the trophy back. What you're going to hear. You got a lot of desperate people in the city. They're desperate because they don't have opportunity. Or what they've got to say. When you can take people inside of a crime, show them things they wouldn't normally see. The truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. That's what you're going to hear on my podcast, Open Mic. Find it where you find your podcasts. Welcome to another episode of Open Mic. I'm Mike Morse here with Kevin Dietz. Good morning, Kevin. Hey, Mike. How are you doing? I'm actually great. How are you uh, and the family surviving? It was nice to get outside. We had some good weather and uh, uh, finally, and uh, it felt really good to get outside. But uh, I think everybody's itching to get back to work and get going. Right. Well, we'll see what's happening with that in the coming days. Um, I'm excited about this. Uh, guest we have here today. I've been following his career for a long time. Mike Cox uh, is a former Oakland County, Wayne County prosecutor, uh, our attorney general for many, many years, and now he's in private practice in Livonia doing some good work uh, for the citizens of the state of Michigan still, but now doing it on the plaintiff side, which, as you know, Kevin, makes me very happy. So let's, <laughs> let's welcome Mike to the show. Hey, Mike, Kevin, how you guys doing? Hey, Mike. Good. Welcome. Welcome to Open Mike. Thanks for being here. Absolutely. I like the, I like the name of the show. <laughs> and that's my dog. You know, when we do the uh, home versions, you never know what you're going to hear. Jesse, come here. <laughs> oh, there's dogs walking by. Yeah. Um, so, you know, Mike, I know you're working on some big stuff right now, but we right. thought before we dive into that, uh, you've had a pretty interesting career, and I, I love... You know, I've I, you and I are roughly the same age, and I've been right. watching your career uh, and following your career for many, many years since I've been out of law school. But why don't you let's take take us from where you went to law school and give us a, a a history of where you've been and what you've done, and then let's get into some of the good stuff you're doing these days. Sure, sure. I, I grew up over by Rouge Park on the west side. And when in the Marines, out of the Marines, ironically, I got two degrees from U of M. Uh, undergrad in law school. And then I always wanted to be a prosecutor. I always wanted to be a public servant. And so I couldn't get into Wayne County, Detroit. That was That's where I wanted to be. I got into Oakland County and had a great time for a year. And John O'Hare and Kim Worthy and a guy, Rick Cunningham, who was a judge, were on my interview panel. And I got my dream job in 1990 in Wayne County. Spent 13 years there. Uh, I did child abuse, uh, sexual assault cases for a while, and ultimately I ran all the homicide prosecutions in Wayne County under then prosecutor now Detroit Mayor Mike Duggan. And in 2003, I, uh, I was the last guy to beat Senator Gary Peters. A very, very close race, the closest race in 50 years in, in Michigan history, and uh, had a great eight years serving the people of Michigan. And since then, I've, I've, you know, I had to jump in the private sector, uh, something you've had to do for quite a while, Mike. And uh, boy, what a shock that was! So, you know, it's like really jumping in ice cold water, and you, you either had to sink or swim. And I'm still treading water. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm trying to get the stroke that you have. Haven't got there yet, but uh, it's worked so, out okay. So you've been uh, on your own for eight years, did you say? Yeah, eight years. You know, I went to a big firm at first. It was nice, but you know. I was spoiled being my own boss. All three of us are our own bosses right now. And there's a lot of risks, uh, but a lot of enjoyment. And so I struck off on my own and uh, 
now I have six lawyers and uh, some support folks, and it's working out pretty well. It, it wasn't my, you know, I ran for governor. That was my plan A. I didn't have any plan B. And, uh, you know, so at first couple of years, quite frankly, I hated it, uh, but I really enjoy it. And, you know, I've got to meet some great, in, you know, individuals and represent some great folks. And sometimes they even get kind of like the, you know, the little more scandalous people. And that's that can be fun. Uh, but right now I have 50 great clients who all went to U of M and did great things for U of M and U of M seems to forget that. And I think that's maybe why you have me on the show. Yeah. It, Mike, what was it, before we get into uh, what's happening in Ann Arbor, what was it like working at the Wayne County prosecutors when you were the head of homicide? Uh, we, we read like Wayne County has more cases than any, any County in the, in the country. Uh, right. We know, you know, that the homicide rates always been pretty high. Um, what, what's that actually like from the inside? I've always wondered what, what that's like to be in that homicide unit. Uh, it was a rush. I loved it. If you're a prosecutor, that's the place to be. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it, I know it sounds odd to a lot of regular folks to like say, I love being the homicide unit, but realistically, Mike, much like uh, Mike probably does right now, when, when your clients first come to you, they're hurting, they're in a bad spot and your job is to help them get to a good spot. Homicides, it's usually family members and you want to have them see the end of the line in justice and, and some sense of closure. And uh, so but I, I got to tell you, it was a rush. It was a lot of fun, a lot of trials. I had 14 high strung people who would scream at me every day about what happened in court. And, and we loved it. And uh, the folks in Wayne County and Kim Worthy, they do a great job with very few assets and uh, they're all to be commended. Yeah, we're, we're, we're a big fan. We've been watching what she's been doing with that victim integrity unit, or not right. the victim integrity unit, but the um, integrity unit right. um, when she's monitoring, you know, past prosecutions and things like that. And, and that's just pretty remarkable. She, I have not, I don't think I've met her, but she, she seems remarkable. Well, I love her because she hired me. So uh, <laughs> she was on the panel. She, she wasn't a boss then, but she was on the panel that uh, approved me. So uh, uh, I've been an admirer ever since. What do you take? What I know this is off topic, but what is your take on the integrity unit um, looking at past prosecutions from her own office um, and letting people out who she feels got a raw deal or shouldn't be in prison? What, what, what's your take on that? Uh, you know, I think it's the right thing to do. Uh, uh, it absolutely is the right thing to do. It actually started. It, it wasn't called that then. Uh, uh, when I was in charge of homicide, we looked at the first uh, Innocence Project case in Wayne County, a guy, Eddie Joey Lloyd, who'd been in prison uh, from the mid 80s. So this was like 2002. And uh, we eventually exonerated him. It was the right thing to do. You know, Mike, uh, as prosecutors, we want to get the bad guys, uh, but we don't want to get the innocent folks. And, uh, you know, so, you know, I, I worry sometimes that people think, if they, as a jury, everything's like uh, TV. Uh, and I know prosecutors, it, it's, it's they, they have a responsibility to fight for justice and do the right thing. Defense attorneys, criminal defense attorneys have a different responsibility. Their responsibility is to advocate for the, for the client. Prosecutors are a little bit different. They're the advocate for the system and make sure the system gets it right. And so this is just the outgrowth of that. And uh, so again, my, uh, I tip my hat to Kim Worthy 
she's doing a fine job uh, with limited resources. And, um, you know, I have a nephew who works there and he's very proud of what he does. And um, I'm glad that he's there and, you know, doing the doing the people's work. Was it was it a big adjustment to move to Lansing to be the attorney general? Um, you know, going from that yeah. that rush of, of of the homicide unit or the prosecutor's office to to statewide and kind of protecting right. consumers for the entire state had to be a little a little different. Well, here here was the biggest adjustment, Kevin. It was like you go to Frank Murphy Hall of Justice and probably the same thing when Mike would go to court in Wayne County, Oakland County. You go up down the elevator with everyone, right? The judges get their own elevator, but the lawyers don't. So you go up there and there's people with yesterday's weed on their breath and, you know, <laughs> and fights in the elevators. And and then you get up there, it was a loud place. And I remember the first time I walked into the to the uh, G, uh, G. Men and Williams building in, in Lansing. It's with 500 lawyers and support staff. And I walk in there, six stories. And you could have heard a pin drop. And that was the biggest adjustment. You know, it was just like the hurly burly helter skelter of a criminal court. And then just going to the more corporate commercial side of the AG's office. Uh, but, but it was really the same in this sense, which is uh, you had a job that, uh, you know, whether you're a Democrat or Republican, uh, it, you know, to, to dig in and represent your clients in that case, the state of Michigan, but also try and do it the right way. So when the state was wrong, to steer your clients to do the right thing. So it was very much akin to being a Wayne County prosecutor, albeit bigger. Uh, and, uh, you know, the, the great side benefit is I was all over the state in my little escort wagon uh, <laughs> and uh, met a lot of great people. Uh, you know, people say, wasn't a, weren't you so happy to be out of politics? It's, you know, it's such a shitty job and everything. I said, no, I loved each and every day of, even when Kevin Deeth was chasing me, I loved that. So <laughs> what does that tell you? So it, uh, it, Those are uh, fun days. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, there would be occasionally bad hours, you know, or parts of the day, but yeah, every day was a, a good day by and large. And I met, you know, and I still keep in touch with a lot of the people I worked with. Uh, not the elected folks, but like the people in the office. And we have great relationships and form some lifelong friendships. And same time, I'm kind of happy now. I'm just kind of quiet doing my thing. And uh, so it was a good part of my life. And I thank God I had it. So let's talk about your law firm. Um, what kind of work have you been doing mostly for the last eight years up until right now? What, what, what was your you know, goal when you came right. out? Uh, you, you know, I I was my goal was to keep the lights on, right, and I'd be able to make my mortgage, and so kind of grew from there. Like I said, six attorneys now; uh, they're all long time, uh, twenty year plus folks. And, and Mike, I have a really nice niche. I, it's a blessing and a burden because people come to you. Half half the people think uh, if you're an attorney general, you're a politician. You don't know anything about the law. And thankfully, the other half think, uh, well, if you're attorney general, you must know everything about everything. everything. Yeah. Yeah. You're so I, I try not to I try not to dissuade them of that. <laughs> and uh, so I get a really mixed bag. So I, I I've, I've had political cases, constitutional cases, election cases. Same time, you know, I represent some of the big three Quicken. Uh, you know, I, I represent folks in front of state entities, whether it's the DEQ or um uh, uh, you know, environmental, natural resources, or I, I do uh, Lara. Uh, you know, it's, it's been a mixed bag, and it's been a lot of fun. 
you know, and I've, like I said, I've had some folks like, like I was very involved with case in the court of appeals with the effort to build the Gordie Howe bridge, except I was on, on the other side of representing the Maroon family. So and I didn't hear you say anything about criminal defense. It doesn't sound like you have much of uh... I, you know, I've done a little. I was trying to do some federal stuff, uh, but it was like uh, when I was a state prosecutor, we always used to bitch that the feds only charge the case where they have video and five confessions. And that's absolutely the case. They, they don't you know, it's, it's different being a federal nothing against them. It's different between a federal prosecutor, and a state prosecutor. You know, someone gets shot on the corner or someone robs the gas station, uh, the people in the neighborhood say, go to the police, go to the prosecutor. Well, in, in federal prosecution, uh, people, you know, there's, there's not that same urgency. And so they can take their time and they get to build bigger and better cases. And uh, uh, so I, it just wasn't as fun, quite frankly. Interestingly enough, I found the civil world more fun, uh, you know, a lot of litigation. And part of it too is um, in many ways, you know, you lawyers after 30 years can get stale. Well, I'm, I'm kind of like a seven or eight year lawyer because on the civil side, it's all still pr pretty brand new to me. So it's, it's scary, but it's, it's still pretty brand new. And man, it's different things every day. So it's, it's pretty cool. That's awesome. So tell us, you know, you're, you're all over the news these days with these University right. of Michigan cases. How did this fall into your lap? Uh, you, you know, um, luck, fate. Uh, it really grew out of a buddy. I, I was in the Marines, and I, then I went to before because I was kind of a screw up in in high school. And then I went to uh, uh, U of M, and I'd wrestle in high school, so I would I would go to meets. And through that, I met a, a guy who was a wrestler from the '80s, and also some of his buddies were football players, and we just kept in touch over the years. And uh, you know, sometimes socialized with our kids. And when this happened on February nineteenth. Uh, that Sunday paper where the Detroit News outed the U of M, uh, who had been looking at this for the past year and a half and knew the real ex full extent of what Dr. Robert Anderson had been doing to athletes for decades. When that went on the front page of Sunday paper, I got calls the next day from buddies. Uh, and so they're my clients and, and Mike, like you, you know, every client is kind of like uh, entrust your their their fate with you and that's a big responsibility but for these folks at least the initial guys uh they're my buddies and so you know i so that makes me a little more animated and it's it's and it's fun again it's kind of like when i was back being a prosecutor it's really easy to identify the guys with the white hats and those with the black hats in this situation and no. the I'm sorry. You know, no, no. It's you know, I, I just a few articles that I've I've read. I mean, this is a a different type of case. Right. Uh, it's going to have a lot of challenges. Uh, the the defendant, the main perpetrator, defendant is dead. Um, right. So take us back. Uh, how, you know, what kind of doctor was he? Uh, how many years was he at the University of Michigan? What have you learned so far? Sure. Sure. Uh, so September 1, 1966, uh, when we were all young or not born, uh, I was born, I don't know about you guys, he started at the University of Michigan. And for anyone who went to the University of Michigan, there's an urgent care, it's called the University Health Service, Student Health Services. He was hired in there, he was hired as an adjunct professor. In 68, he, Bump Elliott, who was a coach of U of M, it was his last year before Bo got there, brought him over to be a team physician. 
Alt, uh, as in the, the fall of 68 was the first complaint against them. A, a student by the name of uh, Gary Bailey uh, was a gay student. And uh, for whatever reason, Dr. Anderson cultivated, I shouldn't say for whatever reason, he was clearly was, he was, his preference was males, he was gay. And he, he couldn't be out about that then. At any rate, he committed a sex act on him. And that young man bravely reported it, and it went nowhere. No one ever investigated it. In the 70s, you know, he's now become the head of the University Health Service uh, with a couple doctors and a whole, uh, you know, the whole bureaucracy. He's also taking over on some of the teams, wrestling team, baseball team, track team. And in the guise of medical treatment, and Mike, I know you had a couple of the young Nasser ladies, much like there, uh, he was much like Larry Nasser. that in the guise of medical treatment, he would commit sex acts. And the athletes couldn't really fully appreciate it. Uh, you know, they thought it was odd or different, uh, but it wasn't, it wasn't, let's say, like a Catholic priest uh, having sex with an altar boy or something where it was obviously sexual, but it was sexual for Dr. Anderson. And you have knew that. In fact, through the 70s, they had a number of complaints about him. 1975, a wrestler by the name of Tad DeLuca wrote a letter to his coach, 10-page letter, if you can imagine that, and to Don Canham, who was the athletic director. They took a scholarship away. Don Canham, who is a legend at the University of Michigan, uh, he wouldn't reinstate it. And what happened, went up to the Board of Intercollegiate Athletics, which is a mix of students, professors, and athletic administrators, they overruled both the coach and Don Cannon. So that tells you in 75, U of M had a great idea about what was going on. More complaints. 79, they actually fired him. There's there's an elderly gentleman, Tom Eastope, who was a vice president over Dr. Anderson at the time. He got a series of complaints. He was new to U of M. And he knew, as he said, that Dr. Anderson was a big guy on campus. Nonetheless, a group of gay young men, including one of Mr. East Hope's own employees, uh, told him that they had been abused. And so this is, I don't know what the number is. And, and Mike, as you know, we'll find out more in discovery how many complaints there were. But these are just the ones we've been able to find out through research at the Bentley Library, uh, FOIA documents, and, and talking with my clients. And U of M, imagine this, they fire him in the fall of 1979 for being a sexual predator on young men. What happens then? A trainer told uh, a police officer that at that point in time, Don Cannon, the athletic director for the University of Michigan, one of the most powerful people at, at the university, quote unquote, worked out a deal to get him moved over to the athletic department full time. And so the same time they fire him, he somehow gets back in and wow. they move him over to the athletic department. And check this out. I don't know if you guys have read the complaints, but there's an annual report that the president gives out every year, publishes it, you know, what happened good, what happened bad at the university, how many degrees. In that calendar year, six months later, they publish this and they say he decided to resign from the University of Health Services. And they praise him for his 11 years of outstanding leadership. Imagine that praise this man, knowing that he had preyed upon young men. And, and then they literally threw him from, I can't remember the right metaphor, but threw him into the briar patch, threw him to where he wanted to be. 
And for the next 23 years, all the way to 2003, he abused hundreds, uh, perhaps a couple thousand young male athletes in the guise of healthcare. Uh, it's just a horrendous story. And it really is a gut check for how, what kind of institution is Michigan going to be? And this is really one of those gut checks, these, these, kind of, these it's moments. Kind of, it's kind of crazy, isn't it, Mike? Because you can see how a school would want to protect its reputation. They, they have right. a problem and they say, all right, let's keep this out of the media or let's keep this quiet or let's, let's right. quietly get uh, him to go away and protect our, our university's image as much as possible. But here it seems like they, they, they saw this problem and instead of sliding them out quietly, they, they, they brought it right back to the forefront. It's amazing. It really is, Kevin. Uh, uh, and, and you and I both went to Catholic high schools and our kids go to Catholic schools. It's much like how the, you know, the bishops handled the, uh, the predatory priests. And it, it has no explanation. Uh, you could say it was the time, uh, but that's no excuse. And it's ab it was absolutely abhorrent. It's a crime what he did literally thousands of times. And U of M, what, what I find, there's really two cover-ups that happen. There's a cover-up that happened when Dr. Anderson was there, but there's a more recent cover-up uh, by the current president administration. And, and that's one thing that really is shocking to me. And let me tell you about, it. so uh, as, as you both know, uh, in February of 2018, just to give you a little a, a little time frame. In February 2018, Nasser sent us. Remember that three days on ESPN and CNN. Mm -hmm. The whole country is riveted. In May of 2018, uh, MSU settles with uh, the first 333 young ladies for 425 million dollars. The following month, a OSU wrestler comes forward and says, "Our team decision abused me." And in fact, 300 OSU, uh, uh, Ohio State football players and wrestlers file hundreds of suits through the summer of 2018. If you remember, Jim Jordan, who's very close to President Trump, was almost sucked up into that because he was part of the wrestling program. Then on July 18th of 2018, Ward Manuel, by all accounts, a, a very good man, friends of, a, a friend of many of my clients, the athletic director at U of M gets a letter from Mr. DeLuca, who wrote the letter 40 years before. And he says, you need to know about this. And he recounts everything that happened with Dr. Anderson. And so Ward Manuel gives it to the Title IX office, gives it to the General Counsel's office. And Kevin, literally three months later, November 5th of 2018, a cop briefs the General Counsel's office, the lawyers for U of M, on the full breath of that there was hundreds of victims, they had been fired, that there had been a cover-up, and, and that there was live witnesses. And what happens then? Crickets. Literally from November until the Detroit News outs U of M in February 19th of this year, really the highest, or the Detroit News really reflected the highest calling of every reporter, I think, but they outed U of M's cover-up. And so to me, uh, there, there's a whole lot of wrongs to go around here. Dr. Anderson, the administrators who let him do what he did for three decades, and the current administration as well for trying to cover that up, and now trying to re-victimize the victims of Dr. Anderson in court. There's so much Man. there to there's so much there to unpack, Mike. Right. Um, I mean, my head is kind of spinning with questions. Yeah. 
So, well, you watched the Michigan State go through that, Mike, right? And, uh, and, right. and the whole country's looking at this deal, and they're saying, oh, my gosh, is this going to destroy the school forever? I mean, this is millions of dollars, the reputation, all of this right. stuff. And in my mind, I'm thinking Michigan's got some group of small power brokers that are saying, what are we going to do about our problem? And all, right. and it seems like they said, oh, let's just – maybe it'll go away somehow, or maybe no one will find out. It seems bizarre to me that they wouldn't think – at that point, at least when Nasser's going down, that they would say, we have to address, we have to come clean on this, address right. this, take care of it and, and handle it. I mean, from a PR perspective, from a university's perspective to move forward, I, I can't believe they missed that opportunity to, to, to come clean. You're absolutely right. Uh, you know, all across the Big Ten, there's been Jerry Sandusky, there's Ohio State with this Dr. Strauss, there's Larry Nasser and East Lansing. And what do they do? They stick their heads in the sand. They don't reach out to the athletes. They don't try to do any, you know, uh, sort of remunerative counseling, nothing. Uh, it's, a, it's incredibly tinier. And you know, what's, uh, you know what's interesting is after the Nassar case was settled, uh, the endowment and the applications to Michigan State went up. Why? Because people had faith that, hey, MSU got it right. They understand this is one of those moments a fork in the road. Are you going to do the right thing as an institution or the wrong thing? And students' applications and donors rewarded MSU. And I, I, I hope, you know, we're, we're out here beating the drum and we're fighting them in court. Uh, but I, I, I have faith that ultimately enough of the regions will get the message. Because if you think about some of those folks, you know, there's Mark Bernstein, uh, uh, who, who, along with Mike Morris and I, had some of the NASA cases. And there's a region, Paul Brown, who campaigned in 2018 saying uh, that what happened to Nassar was a failure of the MSU board and, and that he would be about transparency. We had Denise Illich, who's a region, who I know is a great person. Uh, she was part of not letting the university hire a coach who came from the Nassar era MSU staff. Uh, there's Paul Beam, who's a member of the Michigan Association of Justice, who spoke out about the right that every litigant should get the right to a jury trial. So I'm hoping ultimately, you know, with COVID, I think, I hate to say this, but I think COVID has, has really helped you uh, have out in this regard. It's sucked up so much of the media oxygen, uh, you know, that, uh, you know, that, it, that the media hasn't been able to focus on it. But we, we all know the question is going to come to Tom Brady. I mean, I watch ESPN right now. They, they ask him about how's it with Tampa Bay? What do you think of the draft? But pretty soon someone's going to be on him, and it's going to be a question. They keep asking him, what happened when you were there? And, and do you stand with the victims? Same thing with Charles Woodson. And, and ultimately, uh, the regents and President Sicily have to dis decide, where do we stand? Do we stand about suppressing people's rights to go to court? Do we stand about further cover-ups? Do we stand about trying to sweep everything under the rug by hiring a D.C. law firm to do a quote-unquote independent investigation? Uh, and I think it's going to be a real test of what kind of institution U of M wants to be. So, Mike, you, have, you said you have about 20 cases right now? I actually up to 50 right now, Mike. 50? So, uh, okay. 50. And 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 so you said hundreds you're just are you assuming that there's hundreds because you have 50 and when you have 50 there's yeah. probably hundreds if not more uh, uh well two things my clients have told me 
that, and they have friends who want to get involved. Uh, there's also some other lawyers, uh, uh, Michael Manley, who was involved in NASA, or Nick Graywall, who was involved in NASA case, who, who say they each have 100 clients. Uh, they haven't filed suit yet. I expect they will. Uh, uh, so I'm, I'm, from what my clients tell me and the indiscriminate nature and the cover-up, the indiscriminate nature of Dr. Anderson and the cover-up by U of M, uh, it's safe to say there are hundreds. No, well, yeah, I mean, it, I didn't have that other information. It, it sounds yeah. like it could be towards a thousand, if not more, um, because not everybody, as we know, comes forward. Right. Did any of these gentlemen, I mean, back then, nobody was making police reports. I assume right. uh, there uh, has any, did any of them go to the police after this happened? No. Uh, and, and Mike, you can admit, because uh, like in a Nasser case, uh, Dr. Anderson took care of most of what they needed, right? Uh, so when he was engaging in those things that mentally for him were sexually uh, charging, they just thought it was part of the, the medical treatment, you know, the excessive genital groping, uh, the prostate exam for an 18 year old, which of course, uh, we're all at an age now to know that wouldn't be the case. Uh, and, and a lot of it's also intimidation. He made remarks to some people. Uh, there was a couple of athletes that he actually ejaculated uh, and uh, told them it was part of uh, ensuring that their prostate w was properly functioning. Uh, and it, it seems kind of ludicrous now, but you have to remember the 70s and the 80s. Uh, and I remember that time. I've lived through it. And I understand the, uh, you know, doctors and priests, like they were there, right? And who else, uh, you know, who else do you address with a name doctor and father, right? And, and maybe a, a rabbi or a rabbi. Um, but everyone, I mean, they're, they're cut apart. And, and our and our society was a lot different then. We were a lot more deferential, those those figures. And you figure they knew what they were doing. And, and that's that's what happened here. And Dr. Anderson took advantage of that. And, and when U of M born, they didn't step in to intervene. Instead, they kept him in place and they kept ordering the athletes, if you want to get on the field, if you want to get on the mat, if you want to get on the ice and you want to keep your scholarship, you got to go see this doctor to get cleared. And so they, he had that ability, uh, that sway, that authority over them. Some similarities with Nasser. I mean, totally. Right. Um, so he, he worked for the U of M until 2003, you said? Yeah, so 66 to 2003. Wow. And then he died in 2008. Died in 2008, yeah. And none of this... He was never held accountable. There was never a criminal investigation. There's never a right. civil. Was he ever sued before your suits or or? No, no. He in the '90s, but of course, none of the victims knew about this. There were some complaints to Lara, you know, the Board of Medicine, sure. uh, which the university would have known about, but none of the students would have known about. Uh, but no, he was never sued. Uh, you know, in uh, it, it's it, it really is a function of this abuse in the guise of medical treatment, you know? Uh, and, and we read stories about it all the time, or not all, but, you know, you occasionally have a group of, uh, especially in OBGYNs, you know, uh, the, the doctor's doing something, they don't quite appreciate it. 
And certainly for these young men, they, they didn't really appreciate that. Uh, they didn't really know what was going on. And they just accepted that whatever Dr. Anderson was doing, I, I had a client tell me, he goes, you know, when I was there, the football team, we did everything 150%. We did more than I could ever imagine happened. We ran t- through to the end zone every single play in practice. He goes, I, this was odd, it hurt, but I just thought this was part of playing at the University of Michigan. And uh, Mike, you probably had some clients in Nassar who thought that what Nassar did was just part of being a high level would be Olympic gymnast. And that's exactly the cover up both Nassar and Anderson counted on. In the, I, in the um, I was thinking back to Penn State in the Sandusky case, and right. people talked about how too too few people had too much power, whether it's the right. football coach or the president, and um, and and it just it just makes you wonder what happens when a complaint comes in, whether someone writes a letter or files a complaint. Does it does it just funnel to this one person who can who can make it all go away, or you know, or, or after the NASA thing, it makes me wonder: Are there systems in place that when a complaint comes in, a a lot of eyes get on it now so that this right. kind of thing can't happen because that's what's so so odd i think to the general public is is how can this same violation be happening to hundreds of people and yet it doesn't uh you know get out there um whether you know uh, an athlete tells their parent and a parent says hey listen you're at the university you go do your job or if they you know or if the parent says wait is this right and i get it that you don't know uh what a doctor's supposed to be doing or not doing you know it's like it's like taking your car and it's like hey i just fix it you know um right but it's really troubling to think that this many problems can happen at this many universities along these lines that how, how are so few how do so few people have so much power uh, well, uh, t- two things, Kevin, there. One is the fact that it was happening everywhere kind of tells you like it was a time and place in our society and really the status of doctors and doctors could take advantage of that. And, 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 and unfortunately, a few of them did. Uh, but more recently about power, uh, to me, I, like I say, uh, to me, one of the most shocking things about my university, it's certainly shocking what was happening when I was a student there and I didn't know. Uh, to these to these then young men, but as shocking is the more recent behavior uh, of President Slissel. Because because think about this: on November fifth of twenty eighteen, a detective debriefs the general counsel's office about all the abuse, and and a vice president who had fired Dr. Anderson, who thought he had left the campus, saying, "Oh, there must be hundreds of victims," and a number had been interviewed. That on November fifth you know that went right up to President Slipsold November 5th of 2018. And we heard nothing, crickets. To me, that that is uh, perhaps too much power in a couple of people's hands. No accountability. So to me, it's a, a lack of accountability decades ago and a lack of accountability right now. And that's really what part of what my athletes are fighting. Uh, you know, the their own naivete from years ago, not understanding what he was doing because if you remember in our era, we didn't have good touches, bad touches. I mean, taught my kids that, uh, but we, we didn't understand that. Uh, and so there's that piece. And then there's then there's the, the what I say, two different cover-ups, uh, which Dr. Anderson has, has benefited from both. Uh, but I hope ultimately with uh, litigation and the public taking 
starting to focus on this and asking questions of the university uh, that U of M wakes up and does the right thing, which MSU ultimately did. It took them a little while. There was a lot of fighting and angst, but ultimately MSU did the right thing. And as a, as a Wolverine, you know, who wants to think that I'm part of the leaders and the best, I, I hope my university gets back to that and does the right thing. What do you say to the people? And I think one of the first responses was, this is, this is stale. This is too old. Right. The statute of limitations has run. Right. What are the uh, issues you're, you're facing here on this case? Oh, and, and Mike, as you know, they filed a motion to try and dismiss uh, these claims. They, they file those motions even though they don't doubt that what happened to my clients happened to them. Uh, because for the university, it's not really about the athletes. It's really about trying to lower the, the amount of money they have to pay out uh, to atone for, dare I say, the sins of the university, you know, the wrongs of the university. Uh, but, you know, there is uh, there's a concept in, in Michigan law called fraudulent concealment. It's a statute that's been around for 70 years, which says whenever a civil party hides evidence of a claim, knowingly does so, uh, that the clock, the statute of limitations doesn't start to run. And so really from the very first complaints in 1969 uh, from Mr. Bailey, then a 19-year-old sophomore, uh, saying that I was abused by Dr. Anderson, and they covered that up, and they hid that from the from all the students who go to the University of Health Service. And then through the 70s with athletes reporting, uh, in 1975, the wrestler, 1976, one of my clients told his track coaches. In 79, there's actually a fight in the office of the University of Health Service. And then as we know in 79, Dr. Anderson's fired. So every time a coach uh, sent an athlete to be treated by Dr. Anderson, they were saying, He's a good, ethical, competent doctor who will what first do no harm to you, right? And every time they made that representation with their boss, the AD, or a vice president knowing that he was an abuser, that was concealing, that was fraudulently concealing the truth and allowing Dr. Anderson to fraudulently conceal what he was doing. For instance, uh, uh, you know, he would he would tell these young men, you know. I'm being thorough. That's why I'm I'm putting my finger in your anus. He'd tell these young men when he would uh, stroke their penis or testicles, saying, "I'm checking for testicular cancer." Now, if you read about it on Wiki, you realize it's ridiculous. But they weren't doctors, and so it's like the fraudulent concealment by U of M and by Dr. Anderson stops tolls the running of the statute of limitations, and that's ultimately what's going to help us prevail here. One of the real turning points uh, at Michigan State, to me, to my eye, was uh, when uh, the women sort of uh, came together and felt empowered by coming forward and identifying themselves, standing together, putting a face uh, out there for the victims. Right. Do you think that that could happen in this case, or are men less likely to come forward because of some sort of stigma or, or, or concern uh, in that area? Uh, well, as, as you know, Kevin, all my clients are John Doe's right now, which is permitted under the federal and state rules. Uh, they don't want to be the poster child uh, for this. Uh, you know, a lot of them have sent their children as athletes to U of M and elsewhere. Uh, others uh, have played in the NFL and the NBA and they have public personas. 
And some of them haven't told their family. It's a, it's a very hard thing to, to tell your children or your spouse about. Uh, so it, it clearly, I've, I'll say for men of a certain age, which I put myself in as 58, I think men 40 and over, uh, it is a very difficult situation, especially with, uh, you know, Nasser was heterosexual sex. This is same sex, which has its own layer of societal implications, right or wrong. Uh, but I think with time, if UFM keeps pushing, there, there will be men who will say, uh, I have to stand up if, if, if uh, revealing my identity is necessary, then I will do it. I, I hope it doesn't come to that. I, I hope they don't try and push that. Uh, I certainly don't want to have any of my clients have to do that. Uh, but ultimately, UFM's wrongs will be righted and they'll be righted in the courtroom. And they'll be writing in a way which U of M doesn't have full control over. And so to answer your question, it is different for men. These men are really struggling with it. Uh, the longer the fight goes on, I expect there'll be more people like Chuck Christian who came out last week and, and, and probably bigger, more well-known names. I mean, any U of M fan would know probably at least 20 of my 50 athletes. And God, God, I hope I, none of them have to out themselves. And I, I will do everything to protect that for their sake, but also for the sake of the university. You know, sex assault victims should be treated with respect and have some privacy. Uh, and the other side, if it's a, a college institution, ought to act respectfully. And U of M hasn't done that yet. We'll see if, we'll see if that changes. Do you see this uh, becoming a, a class? Uh, there's one class filing hasn't really started yet. Uh, uh, I, I don't know, Mike, uh, you know, I've been very purposeful. We've gotten, uh, complaints from non athletes who went to the university of health service, not knowing that he was a predator. Oh. And, and if they had, they certainly wouldn't have gone there and they were abused. Uh, but we made a, a purposeful decision. My, my partner in this, Dave Shea with the Shea law firm that, uh, to be true to our friends, because this really started off with our friends and it's friends of friends. Our, our 50 clients of all our friends of our original friends, you know, it's like concentric circles. So we said we would just represent athletes, uh, but it, it could grow into a class. Uh, but of course we have direct actions and we think that's the best course of action for our athletes. Yeah, I hear what you're saying about Michigan stepping up and I mean, this is gonna be lengthy, it's gonna be expensive, it's gonna be embarrassing. Um, I mean, and yeah, you're, you're going to have your work cut out for you on this one too. Cause it sounds like, you know, God knows what kind of records they have. God knows how they yeah. kept records back then right. and what's still available. I mean, I'm just going through the discovery thoughts in my brain. This is going to be right. a, uh, a lengthy, hard fought battle. Um, unless they, like you say, step up and take responsibility and set up a fund and, uh, and that took Michigan State, it took them a while, didn't it? It I did. Mean, it did. It, it wasn't overnight. It, it wasn't overnight. And, and uh, they probably want to figure out how many athletes are going to come forward. And, and so they're trying to probably figure that out. I'm sure in closed session, they've already set aside money as a board. Because, they, like I said, they've known about this. This has been coming for 18 months. Uh, and but to your point about, uh, you know, one of the things about the fraudulent concealment claim is that we get a right uh, to litigate that, Mike. So they file a motion to, uh, to summary us, uh, 
dismiss our case for the statute of limitations, but under the doctrine of federal concealment, both state and federal court, we get a right to depose them about who knew what when. And uh, that is not going to be a very easy process for the University of Michigan. It will, they will not look good at all. Yeah, I, I, have, they, have they made any announcements uh, at all about any changes that they may have made to their processes uh, for people coming forward or or maybe the whole Big Ten has or maybe the NCAA has, but did, have they stepped up at all in that area? No, they haven't. Uh, because like I said, they were, they had swept all this under the rug until February 19th of uh, this year, amazingly, in 2020. Uh, you know, they had known about all these, they'd known that he was a predator and he had likely hundreds of victims and they never let the victims know, uh, before the Detroit news outed them. So, uh, short answer is they have not done anything different. And that's part of what our lawsuit's about. We're seeking injunctive relief. Part of it is we would like to have a better compliance plan, you know, best practices. Again, I would have assumed that U of M already had the best practices. But given uh, the cover-up of the past year and a half, they obviously don't. And so part of our lawsuit isn't just about damages for the victims, the survivors, which it is, but it's also about uh, reaching a corporate compliance program uh, where this isn't repeated again. Uh, you know, because uh, there's that old saying that those who don't know history are bound to repeat it or, or something like that. And if U of M doesn't get its act together now, uh, they will be bound to repeat it in some form or fashion, maybe professors and maybe a particular school, but they will certainly repeat it again if they don't get their act straight now. You know, it makes you wonder how many of these universities around this country have these dark secrets or these things in the attic okay. that may, may or may not come out one day. You know, the fact that this is 40 plus years that there's hundreds and hundreds of people who are abused and it's never come out and it took a it took a newspaper article to bring it to light. I, my brain is just spinning because there's yeah. thousands of universities. I mean, this, I mean, who knows how big of a issue this really was. And it, it, we, and it's so close to us here with, with the, I mean, in Michigan, there are two biggest universities right. and now you're saying Ohio state and you're saying that you're saying, yeah, it, we know Penn you're state. Absolutely, Penn state just, was a little different. In, in this sense, uh, there, Jerry Sandusky was clearly just a, a pedophile, right? So it was clear to the victims that they were sex acts that he was doing. Uh, and not in the guise of medical treatment like Ohio State, Michigan State, and U of M. So to your point, Mike, uh, I, I, I'm not foolish or naive enough to think that it's just a Big Ten issue, right? right. It's, it's I have to believe that there are sports programs all across the country from that era where presidents and athletic directors ought to be looking in-house right now and say, do, do we have this problem under our rug? And, and it'd probably be better to address it now instead of having to go through the turmoil that Michigan State and U of M have gone through in Ohio State. Has there been any attempts for anybody to try to pass some legislation uh, after these cases to make it mandatory reporting, public reporting? Uh, there were some changes during the Nasser era. Uh, if you remember, the Michigan legislature was thinking about actually changing the statute of limitations completely, and they they took right. some steps. Uh, but but it given didn't, nothing the, passed. Did, did Mike? That didn't pass, did it? A, a couple a couple of minor things did. But, but to your point, 
I, I think at the time, uh, the legislators thought MSU was just a one-off. Mm-hmm. But now we have OSU, Ohio State right across our border. We now have U of M. So it clearly probably is time for the legislature. Again, now they're trying to figure out COVID and revenues and stuff. But when this dies down, which it will in the summer, I think it will be time for the legislature again to rethink about these things because uh, people can uh, you know, whine about lawyers making money off these things. But lawyers and reporters oftentimes are the ones who bring some sense of justice uh, to these victims. And without the Detroit News, I don't it's still I'm, I may be sitting in my office, you know, doing something totally different than what I'm doing today. I thank God for the Detroit News reporter, Kim Kozlowski. Uh, and, and, you know, and thank God for lawyers in Nassar who kept pushing that. Uh, so, you know, it's sometimes it's easier to pick at the press and sometimes it's easier to pick at lawyers. But sometimes we get it right. And I clearly Nassar and, and U of M are times when the press and the law profession is getting it right. You talk about... Um, uh the ability for the press to uh, bring a story open like this. And and you talk about legislation um, being changed. I I really think that Michigan has to look at how they treat the freedom of information act. Uh, We are one of the toughest States in America to get information. We file uh, freedom of uh, information requests and they get denied uh, in uh, organizations and the government uh, force the media to go to trial because they know the, to, to, to go to court because they know it's expensive. Um, right. There's some states like Florida that are very open with with public records, and uh, and there's some states like Michigan that are very very tough to get that information. And and thank goodness uh, the newspapers in particular are very good at spending money on attorneys to get those records, those public records that allow you to find enough information or evidence to bring a, a story like this forward. And, and um, I, you know, people talk about the press, which, which is fine, but uh, it, it's important for all of the people to know that there's access to the public records because that's, I, that's essential to, to finding things like this. Oh, absolutely. And, and Kevin lawyers use the FOIA and regular mm-hmm. citizens use the FOIA. You know, I have neighbors when I li- lived in Redford who were very, dropping FOIA requests all the time, but it's part of open government. Uh, yeah, you're right. Michigan started off as being one of the most open in the 70s with its Freedom of Information Act. Now we have two gaping holes, the legislature and the governor's office aren't covered. When I was the attorney general's office, you could FOIA anything from our office, and I'm sure Kevin did a number of times. <laughs> but the governor's office and the legislature are not FOIA books. And why is that? Because you had to have the legislature to pass the legislation and to have the governor to sign the legislation. So they both exempted themselves in the 70s. But clearly, I think, to me, I, and no disrespect to the legislature, uh, the most important first step to, for a FOIA expansion would be for the governor's office, because so much happens there. You know, the governor and state government is like the mayor and local government. And, and it's so important to be able to get some sense of what's going on there. And so I, I agree with you, Kevin, uh, the time is right for FOIA ex- ex- expansion. And, uh, and qu- quite frankly, it helps us. Some of the documents that we're using for our pleadings came from FOIA. Uh, and so I, it, it's a great tool for an open society. It improves everything. 
I bet they charged you a bunch for those FOIAs too. They they, they really run up the price on uh, right. copying uh, a, a public record. Yeah, I, I wish I could pass this kind of copying cost along to my clients, <laughs> <laughs> but they wouldn't pay it. <laughs> That's yeah, it, it does get crazy. Well. Mike, this is a really interesting case. I appreciate you giving us uh, of some insight into it. You're, you have a long road ahead of you. I hope you'll come back on and give us some updates on how it's happening. Hopefully, uh, you'll bring some justice to these to these men who clearly deserve it. So thank you for what you're doing and what you do. And right. it was nice talking to you today. And stay safe and keep washing your hands. And uh, <laughs> I will. We'll talk. We'll we'll talk soon. All right. Thank you, Mike. Thank you, Kevin. And it's great being on an open mic and uh, I appreciate it. You guys take care and stay safe. You too. Thanks. Bye-bye. All right, Kevin, that was uh, quite interesting. I'm, I'm, you know, other than the headlines, I'm glad we got to dig a little deeper and find out what's going on with this case and the magnitude of it. I don't think, I think Mike uh, Cox was right that the media is so, you know, concerned with COVID as they should be that very uh, few other stories are getting covered in depth and had COVID not been going on, I think the story uh, about Dr. Anderson would be a much bigger deal. It'd be a Larry Nassar sized deal. Which you had think. Yeah. I, and I think it will be, I, if, if this continues to go forward, if it's not kicked out of court, uh, if it's, if, if this, if the university decides to take this thing to trial, I, I think it'll get every bit as big. And I do think, and I understand what Mike was saying about, uh, men not wanting to come forward, but I think they will. I think they'll, I think they'll see that it's a different time and, and that, uh, coming forward is, is one of the, the, ways that you, you do get change and demand change for, for everybody who's, who's come behind you. Uh, and, and I'm really concerned what you guys were talking about, you know, if, if you're a physician and, and, um, and, and are you driven to go to work at a place where you might, where it might be easier to victimize somebody, you know, is this going to be a big national problem uh, across the country? Uh, there's a lot, a lot more uh, to do here. And I, I think, I think this case will, uh, elevate, uh, you know, as, as we start to move on from COVID. Yeah. That, I mean, that was a good question you had, uh, about, um, whether or not any of the men will release their names eventually. And if you do get one or two stars, you know, he, he, he's saying that he has 20 athletes that we've all heard of as their names that would bring this to the next level that might help. And maybe Absolutely. one of the guys, will be courageous enough to say, hey, this was, you know, I'm one of his victims. This is not nonsense because they have, athletes have instant credibility. They have credibility and them just saying this happened, people believe it. And it becomes such a different story when it goes from uh, 50 victims or a hundred victims or a thousand victims to a face that you, you can relate to. And, and, right. and you say, wow, this, if this happened to him, you know, what chance did all these other young kids have? And, uh, and that's when I think the media finally understands it and, 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 and gets better at telling the story where it's more relatable. Well, let's uh, sum up this episode of Open Mic with Mike Cox, who's representing at least 50 victims of Dr. Robert Anderson for the, from the University of Michigan Health Services. 
Um, we had an interesting conversation about that case and about uh, the cases he is filing. If you like the episode, please share it, like it, subscribe to our podcast, Open Mic, and we will continue to produce some content for you out there on YouTube. And please continue to watch and share, and we appreciate your time today. Kevin, as always, thank you for being here, and we will talk again very soon. All right. Have a good day. You too. You never know who you're going to see. I'd be one guy one-on-one my whole career. It's timing. It's right for time. the clinching goal to bring the trophy back. What you're going to hear. you got a lot of desperate people in the city. They're desperate because they don't have opportunity. Or what they've got to say. When you can take people inside of a trauma, show them things they wouldn't normally see. The truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. That's what you're going to hear on my podcast, Open Mic. Find it where you find your podcasts.